You're listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. The Bible says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear it. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Verse chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You may be seated. How many of you have ever fought with your family? How many of you would like to have your fights within your families made public for everyone to know? Some of you are like, I never want anyone to ever, like if some of you, maybe this week, some of you parents are thinking, if I was filmed this week screaming at my kids, they would probably lock me up. Well, we have everybody, if you are related to somebody, you're going to have a fight with somebody, and especially your family. And uh, there was a, a story that I heard last year around uh, election season. As a matter of fact, it was in September of 2018 that the Gosar family aired their grievances publicly with their brother, Paul Gosar. Now, you say, well, I don't really know who that guy is. Well, he's actually a public official. He was running to keep his seat for the fourth congressional seat in Arizona. And I want to show you something because all six of his siblings did a campaign ad for his opponent. Watch this. Paul Gosar, the congressman, isn't doing anything to help rural America. Paul's absolutely not working for his district. If they care about health care, they care about their children's health care, they would hold him to account. If they care about jobs, they would hold him to account. If he actually cared about people in rural Arizona, I bet he'd be fighting for Social Security, for better access to health care. I, I bet he would be researching what is the most insightful water policy to help the environment of Arizona sustain itself and be successful. And he's not listening to you, and he doesn't have your interests at heart. My name is Tim Gosar. David Gosar. Grace Gosar. Joan Gosar. Gaston Gosar. Jennifer Gosar. Paul Gosar is my brother. My brother. And I endorse Dr. Brill. Dr. Brill wholeheartedly endorse Dr. David Brill for Congress. I'm Dr. David Brill, and I approve this message. So the question I have to ask is this. How bad of a brother do you have to be for all six of your siblings to come out against you? Well, today we're starting a new series called How to Fight for Your Family, Not How to Fight with Your Family. 
And I don't know if, if you've been watching the news or just seeing just what's going on in the world, that it seems like everything in the world is set to destroy the family in America. Everything is out to redefine the family and to divide the family. But I want you to hear the good news of Jesus, and that is that Jesus came to take that which is broken and to restore it and make it new again. And he wants to restore your family, but before he can restore your family, he has to first restore you. Well, we're going through the book of Ephesians over these next uh, five weeks here at Central as we look at the end of the book of Ephesians. But just to give you a little background, Paul, the writer of the, uh, the epistle to the, uh, the church in Ephesus, is writing to them. Now, Ephesus is in, in modern-day Turkey. It's right there on the coast of, of, of Turkey. And Paul's purpose was to write to believers uh, to help them understand what it meant to be in Christ. As a matter of fact, you'll find that phrase, in Christ, all throughout the book of Ephesians. And some of you say, what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, it's really what it means to be a Christian. And some of you maybe be asking yourself this question, well, what makes Christianity any different from any other religion in the world? Because a lot of people in our society believe that all religions basically teach and say the same thing, and that is, you can boil it down in two words, all religions teach these two words, be good. But Paul tells us that Christianity is not about us being good. The reason why is because we cannot be good on our own. The difference between Christianity and all other religions is not what you're to do, but what has been done for you in Jesus Christ. Not to be good, but to be new, to be changed. We don't, when we become Christians, we don't just turn over a new leaf. We become a new person. And the only way we become a new person is because the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything in our lives. The gospel of Jesus changes how we relate to everything in the entire world and especially it teaches us how we relate differently to other people, including our family. So this morning, it's going to be a lot of review, but it's going to set the groundwork for as we continue on in this series on how to fight for your family. Is It's going to lay the groundwork to help you understand three wonderful things that will give you the strength and the know-how to really see your family transformed by the gospel. The first thing I want you to see is this, and that is the gospel Indicatives. Now, you say, what is the word indicative? Well, you can go and Google indicative, and you might see various uh, understanding or definitions of that, but literally, the word indicative is truths. And so here's the question that we're, we're going to learn. Why can we change? Why can we be different? So if you begin in verse 25, notice what he says in verse 25. He says, therefore, anytime, Spurgeon said, anytime in Scripture you see a therefore, you always ask yourself this question, what is it there for? And it is therefore pointing us back to what he is saying in, chapter, in verses 22 through 24 in which Paul tells the Ephesians that they are to put off the old man, the old them, the old self, and put on the new self. As in that movie, Karate Kid, Master Miyagi, I think was his name, said, wax on, wax off. Paul here is saying, wax off the old man, wax on the new man. And the reason that we do that is because we have been made new. And so Paul is going to, in a moment, list some behaviors. And what he's going to say is that your behaviors flow out of your being. So you do because of who you are. 
Your behaviors reflect your being. That's why last week we talked about being is greater than doing because who you are is going to affect what you do. So in Christ, Paul says that you are in Christ and because you are in Christ, you have been given a new nature. And he says at the end of verse 24, he says this new nature has been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and in holiness. So therefore, you can be a new person. You, don't, you can go through a complete transformation through Jesus Christ. Our new actions, our new behaviors are made possible by our new nature. And this is gospel change. Now, I just want to kind of quickly walk you through chapters at least 1 and 2 of the book of Ephesians for you to see this. In chapter 1, Paul is writing to the Ephesians and he says to them that because of Jesus, you are blessed... You are chosen, you are adopted, you are forgiven, you are lavished upon, you are made known to God, you are made known by God, you have been predestined. If you are a Christian, all those things are true of you. You are blessed, you are forgiven, you are adopted, you have been chosen. So it doesn't matter what the world says about you. It doesn't matter what your mama says about you. What only matters is what God says about you. And you are all these things. And he says in chapter 1, you are all these things. God has made you all these things. Not what the world defines you, but what God defines you. When God sees you, he sees this. He doesn't see anything else. He says, therefore, you have been blessed so that you can be blameless before him in love. God has blessed you so that you can be different. He has changed you so you can be changed. He has forgiven you so that you can be used for Him and by Him. So that you can work through Him so that to Him goes all the glory. Then chapter 2, he says that this is who you once were. You were dead in trespasses and sin. You were children of wrath. You were living according to your own passions. So before you became a Christian, you were destined to wrath, eternal separation from God for all eternity. You were living your life how you wanted to live, all the while dead to the things of God. Now anyone who is outside of Christ, this is their current condition. They're dead to sin. They're They are walking in their own passions, fulfilling their own lust of their own flesh. But the Bible says that this is who you were. You were that, but because of God, now you are this. He says that because God loved us, He has made us alive. We were dead, but now we have been made alive. We were children of wrath. Now we are children of God. We were living for our own passions, but now we get to live for the passion of Christ been changed oh what a wonderful wonderful day day I will never forget that day when Jesus came into my life the Bible says that if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation you're a new creation now that's different than religious change religious change and and listen I've gone around the world. I've met people from all kinds of religions, even religions that maybe you're not even familiar with. And everybody outside of Christianity, the the, the tenor of their change is it's from the outside in. That you reform to be transformed. That if you can 
look the part, then you can be the part. If you can act that way, then you can be that way. But I want you to understand that the gospel change is not from the outside in. The gospel change is from the inside out. It's not what we do for Christ. It's what He has done for us. And so therefore we just live out what He has already done within. So that's why Paul says in chapter 2 verse 8, the Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not a result of works so that anyone can boast. You've been saved. It is a gift, a free gift, a gift that we do not deserve, not a payment that we earn. See, every other religion says this, and even some people within Christianity say this. You must obey God in order to be accepted by God. People sitting in pews, maybe you this morning, you have in your mind that the only way you're going to get to heaven is that you die, and at the end of the day, you're going to stand before Peter, because for some reason, St. Peter is going to be there, and there's going to be this big scale, and on this big scale, on one side is going to be all the good you've done, and on the other side of the scale is going to be all the bad you've done, and if your good outweighs your bad, they let you in. And therefore, the thought is that if I obey God, then I will be accepted by God. There are people all throughout our world who think that God will only accept them on the basis of how good they are. But the problem is, is that our, our goodness is never going to be good enough. See, religions say obey in order to be accepted, but the gospel says that because we're accepted, we can obey. <laughs> Just believe it. See, Christian obedience is not an action to earn forgiveness, but a reaction because we've already received forgiveness. So therefore, our obedience is always a response to what God has done for us. Now you say, Pastor, what does this have to do with my family? Just hold your taters, as we'd say in Kentucky. Just hold your taters. What this does is it gives us hope. If you are a parent that struggles with anger, there's hope. If you are a child that deals with lying, there's hope. If you are a husband or a wife that deals with struggles with laziness or bitterness, there's hope. Because in Christ, you can be different. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can change. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. The Bible says that if you are in Christ, you were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, this is so that, just as Christ was raised from from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might too be able to walk in the newness of life. See, why we do what we do is more important than what we do. You think about this. Some of you that are parents, how do you motivate your kids to be good in school? You go up to your kids and you say, do your work. Study hard. And if you don't, Junior, then you're going to fail and you're going to be a bum. You're going to live in a van down by the river. And your life is going to be completely ruined. Or you say, Johnny, if you don't do good in school, then people are going to think you're dumb. And so if that's your motivation, and I'm sure there's other parents who have said far worse than that. But if, if that's the motivation, the motivation is fear-driven, Right? That if you don't do this, then this is going to happen to you. And it's the fear of punishment and the fear of rejection. So your child may work really, really hard in school because A, they're afraid of your disapproval of them or B, they're afraid that they're going to be a bum living in a van down by the river or they're afraid that other people are going to think they're dumb or they're going to have some other motivation. 
And the problem of it is, is that they may actually do good, but they won't love learning. And they won't really learn anything. They'll do whatever it takes to get the A, but they they won't learn diddly squat. It's kind of how I was in Hebrew in seminary. I said, Lord, if you help me remember, I promise you when this is over, I'll forget it. Now you say, well, why does it matter as long as they get good grades in school? The issue is not so that they can, what they do, it's who they are. And if all you do is come to church so that you can check it off your list and say you did a good deed, but you have no love, no affection for God, then to God's eyes, that's horrible. I mean, those of you that are married, if your spouse did something nice for you, only with an ulterior motive to get something else, and that never happens in marriage. Or if they only did this, if your husband comes up to you and says, Honey, I love you. And then secretly he has this thing on his phone in which he checks it off and says, I told my wife I love her, so I'm being a good husband today. But does it really love you? What good is that? Religion is all about checklists. It's not about change. See, the motivation for the Christian life and obedience to God can't just be fear or ego motivated. It has to be something greater. Some of you this morning, you're going to hear all the things we're going to talk about this entire month. And you're going to say, I'm going to change. I'm going to change. And I'm going to do all these things because I want to save my marriage. But not because you love your wife. Does that make sense? So many people want to do things so that they have good kids, but they don't. it's not because they love their kids. And maybe they love their kids and they want them to be good. But do they want to be good or do you want them to be godly? We have to be motivated by something greater than fear. It has to be something better, something that brings joy, something that's long-lasting. And the only thing that can do that is the gospel. Adrian Rogers said this, an employee serves because they need to. A servant serves because they have to. But a child of God serves God because they want to. So that's the gospel indicatives. And I went too long, and I don't have my clock that tells me how long I'm preaching this morning. So I'm just going to go until I'm done. Second. Gospel indicatives, number two, gospel imperatives. So then, basis of all that, I haven't even gotten to the sermon yet. We're just now in the text. Gospel imperatives. It's summertime. You all wish you were on vacation right now, right? (laughs) All of you watching online, you can pause it and then come right back. Paul lists in the text five imperatives, and we're going to go through these really quickly. And these five imperatives are based on five, uh, uh, the indicatives of the gospel. The truths of the gospel lead to these imperatives. Notice that he gives the, the indicatives, the truths of the gospel, before he gives the imperatives. If, if all you get in Christianity is do this and don't do that, you're going to be miserable. You have to have the motivation. And so if you've been changed by Jesus, Paul's thought is that Jesus is going to change your life. Note this one phrase, your relationships... Your relationship with Jesus changes every other relationship you have. Write that down. And if it doesn't, then you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You can tell you that straight up. So he gives five commands that tell us how to treat people. The context is within the church. Chapter 4 is about the unity of the church. And you can apply this to the church. You can apply this to any relationship. I'm going to this morning apply this to your family relationship. So the first thing he says is that if you're a new creature, if you're in Christ... This is how the new person acts. Verse 24, he says, put away falsehood. Speak the truth. So a believer goes from lying to speaking the truth. The word falsehood is the word, the Greek word pseudos. Deceptive, false. Speak the truth. In Christ, we know the truth. 
Jesus said, you'll know the truth, the truth shall set you free. We should speak the truth. Why should we speak the truth? Why should we not lie? Why shouldn't we embellish? What's wrong with manipulating people? What, what's wrong with just misleading people? What's wrong is because God's truthful. God tells the truth. God does not lie because God cannot lie. And therefore, if I love God, I want to be like God. And if I want to be like God, God loves the truth. Therefore, I'm going to love the truth. So therefore, Paul says, we should speak the truth because we love the truth. Because the truth is what sets us free. So in your family life, I want you to get, this is a good point. Please don't just gloss over this because I've got to be really quick. Your greatest currency, the greatest currency in your family life is trust. Greatest currency you have is trust. Trust is built on telling the truth. Your relationship, this is a good word, your relationship is only as strong as the trust you have with the other person. It's only as strong. So if you don't trust somebody, your relationship is not going to be very strong. There's no, there's no trust, and if there's no trust, it's because there's no truth. So when spouses lie to their spouse, when parents lie to their kids, when kids lie to their parents, the family relationship breaks down. Trust is quickly lost and slowly earned. Those of you that have broken trust, don't just think it's an automatic, they're going to trust you again. It's quickly lost slowly earn but trust is broken when truth is obscured now i just i want to everybody take your naive cap off and let's just talk turkey if you're a parent please just know your kids are sinful i don't care how good you think they are they're varmints your kids have a sin nature, just like you have a sin nature. Just this week in Vacation Bible School, they let me come out of retirement to do some things in Vacation Bible School. I've been in retirement for five years. I came out just like Michael Jordan, came back. And I asked every one of the kids the same question. Hundreds of kids we had here. I asked them one question. Do you tell lies? You know what they all said? Yes. So just in case you were wondering, your kids lie. Your kids don't always tell you the truth. And we live in a day in social media, especially the older they get, the more they lie and the more sophisticated their lies become and the more they can hide lies. But the same is true with parents because the same kids that lie have parents that lie just as much if not more than they do. We're liars. We're natural-born liars. And Paul says, you shouldn't be a liar. You shouldn't deceive. Kids, don't lie to your parents. Some of you this morning that are kids, you need to hear this word. Some of you are living in sin, and you're lying, and you're deceiving. Tell the truth to your parents. Share your struggles. Moms and dads, husbands and wives... Don't lie to each other. Tell the truth to each other. If you want your family life to function, tell the truth. You know, think about this in your body. Your body only functions properly and safely when each part communicates 
correctly and truthfully. If your brain started giving false signals to your feet while you're walking, you're going to fall. If your hand reported to your brain something was cold when it was actually hot, what's going to happen? You're going to get burned. If your eyes tell your brain that the truck you see coming down the road is further away than what it actually is, and you pull out on 46, you're going to have an accident. So if you want to know why your family isn't functioning, it could be because there's a lot of lying and deception going on in the family. And some of that deception may actually be lying to yourself and living in self-denial. Now, I told you I was going to go quicker and I have to because I can't preach here all day because some of you are, couldn't handle it because I don't think I can handle the truth this morning. Notice the second one, verse 26. So he says, stop lying, speak the truth to one another with your neighbor. We are members of one another. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Now, let's just stop there for a second. Paul's saying here that you can be angry and not sin. He is saying at the very onset that anger is not a sin. Did you know that you can be good and mad? He says, be angry. That's a positive. It's even a command. So some of you are like, well, praise God. I, God's commanded me to be angry. This is why I'm so angry. Because I'm obedient. I love Jesus. But the anger here is not outward boiling over rage or inward burn. The anger here is a settled conviction. God is angry. It's a communicable attribute of God. So to be angry is not to sin. Jesus got angry and he confronted sin. But there's a difference between sinful anger and righteous anger. Righteous anger, the anger that God has, the anger that Jesus had, is being angry at the right thing in the right way. Let me give you a definition. This is from Tim Keller, and I actually think it was really, really good. Look here at this definition about anger. Hopefully it's on there. Anger is love in motion to deal with a threat to someone or something you truly care about. Anger is actually a form of love. It's love in motion. So anger is not just an occurrence in our lives, but it can actually be a right occurrence in your life. That If you see somebody messing with your kids, you get angry. You move to deal with the threat to someone that you love or to something that you love. So it's fine for Christians to get angry at injustice in the world. Listen, we should be angry at the fact that millions of babies are aborted every year in our country. We should be angry that there are some who actually want us to pay for that. But we should also be angry about the abuse and the injustice that's going on in the border in our country. As people are coming in and people are being put in cages and separated, we should be angry about that. We should be angry with child abuse. We should be angry when someone is wrongfully mistreated. We should be angry with racism. We should be angry and we should be moved to deal with it in a way that's helpful. But unrighteous anger is self-defensive. It's self-serving. It's resentful of what's been done against yourself. So what you have, if you go back to that definition, anger is love in motion to deal with the threat to someone or something you truly care about. And what you'll find is that sinful anger, the someone or the something you truly care about, is you. 
Uh, does it mean we should hate ourselves? No, but here's the thing. If you want to see the difference between a right anger and an unrighteous anger, what's the motivation? Who's the center of it? If it's you, it may not be right. Here's the question you should ask yourself when you get angry. What am I loving so much right now that my heart is moved to feel so angry? See, if it's when someone offends you, Paul says, listen, don't get angry at what they've done to you. In fact, just absorb it. Anger that you may have towards them should be a loving, heartbroken anger. Anger at their sin and what they are doing. When Jesus was on the cross, what did he say? Forgive them. They know not what they do. He absorbed what they did to him, didn't he? And his righteous anger turned into forgiveness. Notice what Paul says. I, don't, I wish I had more time, and someday I'll come back and we'll go through this even more. It looks like a great sermon series. But notice he says in verse 26, Do not let, your, let, not let the sun go down on your anger. This was a proverb in Paul's day. The test of righteous and unrighteous anger is this. How long are you angry? Sinful anger simmers, then boils, then eventually explodes and can destroy everyone in your path, including you. That's the test. How long are you angry? Righteous anger is short-lived. Anger is a good emotion, but can easily turn to sin. And so if you continue to stew on it, that's when it becomes very wrong. You know, your, has any of your kids ever made you angry? Your kids does something dumb or something that you don't like, and you get angry at them. But then you realize they're just kids, and you love them, and then you just quit being angry at them, right? And just say, whatever. I love you. But if you, if your kid does, the reason why is because you love them. But if your kid does something and you stay angry at them for a long amount of period of time, that's sinful anger. And what Paul says is this, is that when our anger isn't short-lived, he says, listen, you are giving Satan an opportunity, a foothold in your life, and his foothold can cause great damage. Notice he says in verse 26, be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. When I was getting married, some of the great advice that I was given, many of you have heard this same advice, is don't go to sleep angry at your spouse. And the result of that is I've had many sleepless nights. When you do, when you are angry, you are giving Satan an opportunity to feed yourself pity, to feed yourself righteousness, to feed yourself selfishness, and it will lead to disaster. So if you cannot let go of your anger, then it's sinful, selfish anger. Why do we not want to be so sinfully anger? Because you know something about God? God is rich in love and slow to i got to hurry up. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. If you want to see God really bless your marriage, bless your home, stop lying to each other. Don't allow the sun to go down on your anger. Deal with your anger. And don't be greedy, but be generous. Now, here he's saying don't steal. And we know that. Paul's saying instead of, taking what, instead of taking what doesn't belong to you, work hard to do good for others. 
Why do we want to have a good work ethic? Why do we want to not be greedy and lazy? Because God is not lazy and God is not greedy. God is a generous God. He created everything that we have and he shares it with us for our enjoyment. So here he says, labor, do an honest work. In Paul's day, people were day laborers, which meant that if you worked, then you got paid. But if you didn't work, you didn't get paid. And if you didn't get paid, you didn't eat. And so some in Paul's day were stealing and cheating rather than working to meet their needs. The Bible teaches that God dignifies work. He ordains work. Work is a way in which God blesses us. Work is not a curse. It's a blessing. But we are to work with our own hands. We're not just to freeload. We're not to freeload off the labor of someone else. Paul actually gives a great admonition to men in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, in which he says in the Allen version, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. We live in a day of freeloaders. We live in a society where people think things are free. Some of you kids think things are free. I don't care what a politician says. Anything that is of any value is not free. It comes at a cost. If you have anything that is good, someone paid for it, and someone worked hard for you to have it. But notice he says here, why should you work? So some of you are, in your mind, you, you know, some of you that work hard. And I know some of you, especially in the marriage, in the home, husband works, wife works. Some of you work to exhaustion. You're working so hard. And you think, yes, this is right. I'm tired of all those freeloading kids. I'm tired of my freeloading spouse. But Paul says here, you're not to work just so that you have something for yourself. He says, not just... For something to, for you to have, but for something for you to share. Notice he says here, he says, work hard so that you may have something to share with anyone in need. Expend your energy, not just for your own gain, but for the gain of others who are in need. Work hard so that you can be generous to those that are in need. Now listen, this is totally counterintuitive. I'm basically reading because i got out of time. Our world says work hard and enjoy yourself. The Bible says work hard for the benefit of others. God blesses us to bless others. We are to be a conduit, not a cul-de-sac. And this is all about faith. Faith is the power, by grace, to be content with what we have. Some of y'all are discontented. It's a faith problem. Faith is not only the power to be content with what you have, but faith is also the power, by grace, to be discontent with what others don't have. Faith doesn't have to steal. Faith doesn't have to freeload. Faith doesn't have to hoard to be happy. But faith does have to give and share to be happy. So here's the question. How many marriages are broken because of the greed and self selfishness of both spouses? I'm going to share this next Sunday. But marriage does not fix problems. Marriage exposes problems. More on that next week. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Go from tearing down people to building up people. This word, uh, uh, when he says here, uh, no corrupting, literally means rotting fruit. Have you ever just opened the fridge and just smelled something rotten? I mean, have you ever just, just ugh. Here he's saying, don't have, not, it's not have to do with stinky breath, it has to do with stinky words. You know, there are two types of people in the world, those who build up and those who tear down. 
Why should we speak and build up people? Because God is a God who encourages. All throughout the Bible, God encourages his people. All throughout the Bible, God tells us how much he loves us. And the Bible itself gives life. It doesn't take life. So husbands and wives, you need to think about what you say. The Bible says all throughout that your tongue is a reflection of the heart. How you talk to your kids and how you talk to your spouse reflects how you walk with God. And I want to be very transparent that my wife can always tell if I'm walking with the Lord or not by what I say. So how you talk to your kids and how you talk to your spouse can impact your relationship and their future more than anything else. So I want to give you three questions, three diagnostic questions. won't be on the screen, so write them down real quick. Three questions to ask yourself before you say anything. If we all ask ourselves these three things, we probably wouldn't say that much. Number one, before you say something, ask yourself this question, is it true? Number two, is it necessary? Number three, is it kind? Some things may be true, but not necessarily kind. Some things may be kind, but not necessarily true. And some things may be necessary, but not kind. Now, does that mean that if someone's living in sin and it's the truth and you're trying to call them out, if you call them out, you're not being nice? No. Sometimes the greatest kindness is to tell somebody the truth. Does that make sense? Paul says, speak the truth in love. But build up. Don't tear down. Let me give you the last one. And this, this will solve your marriage. This is one. I think anyone who's married needs to memorize chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, but especially verse 32. If you are a Christian and your husband or wife is a Christian, verse 32 of chapter 4 should transform your marriage and how you deal with each other. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. One of the things that destroys more marriage is unforgiveness and bitterness. Why should we forgive? Because God is slow to anger and he's quick to forgive. He is kind, he's compassionate, and he's forgiving. Notice he says, forgive as God forgave you. Forgiveness from God comes through Jesus Christ. And how does God forgive us? He forgives us fully. He forgives us freely. And he forgives us finally. Forgiveness is not coerced from God, but it is a choice by God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Forgiveness is not free. It costs, costs Jesus his life. I want to hear you here this morning that it will cost you to forgive, but it will cost you far more if you don't forgive. Let me get to the last point real quick. Gospel indicatives, gospel imperatives, gospel inspiration. How can you do it? Verse 1 and 2, and I'm just going to read it, and we're going to close it, and we're just going to allow the Holy Spirit to work this morning. Therefore... Therefore, what's it there for? Go back to what he just said. All these things are being an imitator. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. God doesn't lie. He tells the truth. God doesn't lose his temper. He's rich in love and slow to anger. God doesn't steal. He's generous. God does not tear down. He builds up. God does not hold grudges. He forgives. We are to mimic our Father. And the reason why we can mimic our Father... It's because of our brother, Jesus Christ. He says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice 
God. I don't have time to go through all of what I want to say, but here's what I'm going to say. To the degree that you understand the gospel, to the degree that you understand how much God loves you, is the degree that you're going to want to be like your, like your God. One of the sweetest things I get to see is that my kids actually want to be me. They want to be like me. Now later on they're not going to want to be around me, but right now they like me. And they'll do what I do. If I dress a certain way, they'll dress a certain way. If I walk a certain way, they'll walk a certain way. If I talk a certain way, they'll talk a certain way. If I love this sports team, they'll love this sports team. They like what I like. Right now we, we watch a show, and, and I know preachers aren't supposed to watch TV, but I do. And we watched The Amazing Race. And the other night, last night, we were watching The Amazing Race. We were always kind of behind because of the DVR thing and and, and I said, you guys just go on and watch it. Daddy's tired. He doesn't feel good. And they said, Daddy, we don't want to watch it unless it's with you. We want to be with you. I don't, they don't even really pay attention. They just want to hang out with me. That's great. Because they love me and I love them. And they know that I love them. Listen, when you know that your Father in Heaven loves you, you're going to want to be like Him. And everything I just said is just like Him. And, and you know what? He's perfect and He functions right. So... Tonight, today, maybe what's wrong in your marriage is that God's not the center of your marriage. Maybe what's wrong with your parenting is that God's not the center of your parenting. Maybe what's going on with your relationships with other people is that God's not the center. Because if you remember what I said, your relationship with Jesus will change every other relationship that you have. So this morning, we just want to bask in how much He loves us. Let's all stand. Father in heaven, God, I, I love you. You're my dad. Thank you for my earthly dad. Thank you for my earthly mom. And God, I just want to be a small reflection of you to them, to my children. But God, I want to be like you. I want to, I want to love. I, I, want, I don't want to lie, God. I want to tell the truth. I don't want to be angry in sinfulness. I, I want to be righteous in my anger. God, I, I don't want to be lazy. I, I don't want to be greedy. I want to be generous. God, I... I don't want to tear people down. And God, you know that there are many times that, that my tongue often tears down more than it builds up. And God, I, I don't want to have unforgiveness. I want to forgive others because you've forgiven me. So God, I know that there are people today, maybe they've never, they do not have this relationship with you. God, would today be the day of their salvation? In Jesus' name.